Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Binyi Applebaum has this great new book out called The Economist Hour. It's like a really fascinating sort of look at like the deep, big picture economic policy issues. Uh, as soon as I read it, I wanted to have him on the show. So I, I was really excited to sit down, talk to him about, about economics, about politics, about regulation, about inequality, and about the just kind of like really big picture topics that have been shaping the world. I think you're really going to love this conversation. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined today by Binya Applebaum from the New York Times uh, editorial board, uh, but speaking to us today in a non-board capacity. Um, you've got a, a great new book out. It's called The Economist Sour. Uh, I, I really like it. People people should buy it. That, absolutely, I, I highly agree with that point. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody should buy it. At least one copy. The buying of the book is critical. Reading it, I would say, is also recommended, but less essential. I, I also favor reading it. I'd, I'd put those two things on the same level from my perspective. <laughs> no, no, you got to sell. Always sell. So the book is called The Economist Sour. I thought what I learned the most about, though, was actually before The Economist Sour. So can you tell us about that? Like, how did economic policy used to be made in the United States. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, you know, for me, actually, uh, in researching this book, uh, that's a lot of what was new for me as well. So, you know, economics, macroeconomics, the idea that the economy can be measured and managed is a pretty new thing in the world. It really emerged uh, from the Great Depression. Uh, and so before that time, and even for a couple decades thereafter, economists were not big players. They were not fixtures in the halls of power. They were very peripheral figures in American government. Uh, you know, I, I begin the book with this story about uh, an economist who worked in, in the bowels of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York as a human calculator in the 1950s. And he goes home one night and tells his wife that he can't imagine a career as an economist at the Fed. There's just no way up. There are no economists on the board of the Fed. Uh, the guy who ran the Fed at the time has a disdain for economists. And that guy is Paul Volcker. And, you know, by the end of the 1970s, he's running the place. But uh, way back in the early 1950s, that was inconceivable to him and indeed, to, you know, most policymakers in America. So, um, who, so who I mean, who who was because now it's like so. So Jay Powell is, is not an economist, um, but that is a is a change. Right. So yeah. Janet Yellen, uh, Ph.D., very respected academic, Ben Bernanke, same thing. Uh, Alan Greenspan, less of a like academic economist, but still has that background, Paul Volcker. A and the staff is like, that's like PhD central. Yeah, absolutely. So so what what was going on in the 50s? So I, I think, you know, two things. One is that there were a lot of people making economic policy in a less rigorous, you know, sort of using economic tools, but in a less rigorous uh, way, uh, sort of grappling with these concepts. But there also were a lot of other people who are involved in policymaking in a much broader set of concerns. And maybe one of the clearest places where you can see this is in antitrust. 
So antitrust is is a, a very American concept that comes up around the turn of the century where there's this real concern about corporate power. Uh, and the idea is basically that large corporations are not just or not even primarily bad for the economy, but that they're bad for democracy. They're bad for our system of government. Uh, they, you know, prevent people from, you know, becoming sort of economically independent citizens. Uh, and and so they need to be constrained. Uh, and for the next half century, the people who administer this are lawyers. Um, they're in charge of the antitrust regime, and their concerns are less economic uh, than democratic and social. And they essentially, you know, decide which mergers should be prevented, which types of corporate conduct should be prohibited. There's this amazing scene. Uh, you know, Ralph Nader commissioned a series of studies of the federal government in the late '60s and early '70s. He sent a team to the Justice Department to look uh, at the antitrust division there. And there's this amazing scene where they're they're explaining the the writers of this study say you know economists play a very you know sort of subservient role at the department. In fact, uh, you know we were interviewing one of the department's economists, and he interrupted the interview and said, "I'm sorry, my master called," and <laughs> and his master was a lawyer, and that's right. who he worked for, and that's who was in charge of antitrust enforcement at that time. Right. So so this was uh, the antitrust statutes are written sort of quite broadly, um, and there's a lot of different you know things you could read into to those terms. And in the modern day, what's read into them is a very specific set of economic calculations, right? So it's, I mean, it's still lawyers run the antitrust division, right? But the, but the legal doctrine has like become about economics. Yeah. And the referees are basically economists because what, what's happened to antitrust law in particular is that it is now basically uh, read as saying that the measure of corporate conduct is whether consumer prices are going up or down. Up is bad, down is good. Uh, if you can prove that something is going to cause prices to go up, you can block it. Uh, if you can't, then you can't block it. Um, it's true that lawyers still do the paperwork, but fundamentally, battles about corporate mergers are conducted between rival sets of economists, each putting forward predictions about what's going to happen to prices. Uh, and so what you have essentially is a system in which economists play the decisive role. And, and so this is like when, when you, you develop the, the concept of, of the economist's hour, right? So this describes a like a real transformation of government institutions and how we think about public policy. And, and where, where does that come from? It's really amazing. Yeah, it's this revolution in the late 60s, early 70s, where economists begin to gain this type of preeminence across a wide range of public policy spaces. They're becoming, you know, decisive in the administration of regulation. Uh, they're involved, obviously, in reshaping tax policy. They take control of the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, they're influencing, uh, they dismantle the system of fixed exchange rates that had uh, prevailed in the decades after the Second World War. In area after area, these uh, you know apostles of free market ideas are coming forward and saying, "Listen, the solution to this nation's economic problems uh, is for government to step back and let markets uh, play the dominant part, let markets allocate resources." Uh, and those ideas really begin to take hold. And and so this is comes from a wide set of regulations that that had been in place previously that were I don't know I don't know exactly what the word for it is, but we tried to regulate not just. Uh, like pollution externalities, right? But the actual operation of the economy, right? Like the airline industry had a civil aeronautics board that would decide like which flights go where. And, and what you could serve on those flights. I mean, right. the details of it, right? So yeah, it wasn't, I mean, indeed, there really wasn't much pollution regulation before 
you know, the 60s and 70s, you have a period where the dominant form of federal regulation is essentially the administration of the marketplace. You need a federal license for a truck to carry undeveloped film from one city to another. You need a different federal license to carry the same roll of film after it's been exposed. Uh, you know, you've got airline regulation, you've got, you know, careful regulation of utilities, uh, you know, across the board, the government is really involved in managing their bureaucrats in Washington who are literally sitting in judgment on where airlines can fly. It's it's uh, It seems inconceivable by modern standards, uh, but that was really the focus of federal regulation was rooted in a, in a fear of competition. Right. And so my grandfather was an economist. Uh, two of his sons, my, my, my mom's brothers, uh, they're economists, mostly working in these kind of fields, uh, regulation, stuff like that. Uh, and, and my grandfather started a, an economics consulting company, one, one of the first ones, and, and worked on these deregulatory initiatives that that rolled out uh, across the 70s. And so I, I was always taught this as a kind of a, this, this was a heroic story that like we used to have a lot of anti-competitive rules in place that were all about, uh, you know, basically insiders in the trucking industry would like make deals with each other. And, you know, AT&T would sit down with regulators and decide what kinds of phones people could use. And eventually, like the wisdom of these economic technicians, uh, like helped give us the, the blessings of freedom. I think it's a story that is, you know, it follows the same arc as a lot of revolutions. There were some real problems that the revolutionaries were trying to address, uh, and they succeeded in overthrowing that old system. And there were a lot of benefits. And then the revolution goes too far. They get, you know, caught up in their own sort of ideas and they carry them to logical extremes. So with regulation, yeah, that's right. I mean, the trucking industry, it was absurdly expensive to move freight, absurdly complicated. The companies were basically authorized by the government to set mandatory prices. Uh, and it was a terrible system. And its deconstruction had huge benefits. And so the share of our national product that is devoted to logistics has has diminished significantly in recent decades. And that frees up resources to do other things. That's great. Um, but what you see is that in the deconstruction of these systems, there is also a loss of the parts that were valuable. So uh, antitrust enforcement. So when they deregulate the airlines, they basically have this premise that, you know, airlines are going to be able to compete. There'll be lots of airlines. You'll always have competition to take you from place A to place B. And, you know, the modern world, there, we basically have four airlines in the United States. Anyone who's ever tried to shop for a flight knows that the prices are all the same. It's not a coincidence. We don't have competition in that market anymore. Um, and so you also get effects for workers, you know, where the big losers in airline deregulation are the people who work for the airlines. The executives make a lot more than they used to. The, the flight attendants and the mechanics and the pilots make less. So, you know, there's a real redistribution uh, of prosperity as part of this process, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's specific in, in the airlines is, is really interesting, right? Because on the one hand, you had a set of deregulation changes that were designed to promote competition. But then, like, literally, like what the left hand is doing at the same time is saying, well, we also need less antitrust enforcement. Right. So instead of having a, a like dual handed effort to promote competition in the industry, you're actually moving from a sort of supervised non-competitive situation into an unsupervised one. Right. I mean, they thought of it as competitive. They had this whole theory that there were no uh, economies of scale in the airline industry. 
Uh, They hadn't yet thought of frequent flyer programs. They hadn't yet thought of the hub and spoke model. They had this real conviction that if you just let airlines compete, the equilibrium would involve a lot of airlines, a lot of relatively small airlines competing with each other. And so they didn't worry too much about consolidation. And they were badly wrong. They sort of, you know, they put the creatures in the cage and walked away and they came back the next morning and a few of them had eaten all the others. And, uh, you know, that was too bad. And it's funny because, you know, it's the sort of person who in another circumstance would be the first to tell you that, you know, innovative business people with incentives to find ways to make money are probably going to be able to outsmart like six guys in a government office trying to think about how this industry works, right? Because like that's your point about the frequent flyer miles, right? Like that's a great one. Like that didn't exist at the time of airline deregulation. And the people who were, you know, running the show, like they didn't think of that. Like that's, that's a smart businessman's idea. Absolutely. They had this disdain for regulation. And I think there's something to that, by the way. I mean, I think, you know, our, our regulators are in many instances outmanned and and not as well funded and not as clever. And you do see this uh, tendency. But, you know, they they had this faith, basically, that markets would not reach the point where the public was being harmed. That basically, you know, the way that one of the great apostles of this, a guy named Aaron Director at the University of Chicago Law School, and he always used to describe marketplaces as basically, you know, companies were so busy trying to survive that they didn't have time to prey on their customers. Uh, His colleague George Stigler argued that, you know, attempts to collude among companies were inherently fragile and would be unsuccessful. And so the government actually writes into its uh, into its regulations for antitrust that, you know, you basically don't need to worry about cartels because everyone knows that cartels are fragile and can't exist. Uh, and then in the 1990s, the Justice Department has this idea to grant immunity to the first company that confesses to being in a cartel. And they don't know what to expect, but almost immediately there's this outpouring of confessions. And you know, the guy who was running that program at the time told me that I mean, he was an economist, and he said, "I was stunned. We we knew that there weren't cartels." And then you know, he said, "But if you happen to be one, be in one, you know, come report it." And all of a sudden, there's this huge number of cartels in the economy because you know it turned out the cartels actually weren't that fragile. Okay, so that, that that's a great story, and I I want to take a break and then then ask the question of like like what are we exactly talking about here? Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier 
Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W, dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So your book is framed as a kind of a criticism of economists, right? Uh, and and, and you, you had that story there about, about the cartels and about, you know, George Stigler's economic influence. Uh, but of course, you know what, another famous economist is Adam Smith. Um, and he says uh, in, in The Wealth of Nations that you should be very worried about cartels, right? That like any time I, – I, I can't quote him, but it, it's something like any time people in the same business get in a room together, like they're going to form a secret cartel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my question is, is like how much of this is really a story about economics and economists as a discipline versus a particular sort of ideological group? So I, I think, you know, in the first place, the evolution from Adam Smith, even even George Stigler as a young man, <laughs> writes an article in, in Fortune magazine in the in the 1950s arguing for the breakup of big corporations. And, you know, at the time, that was absolutely conventional wisdom. Uh, so, you know, there's this real transition in what conservative economists think about uh, antitrust over the course of the 20th century. Uh, they end up making their peace with with the corporate sector, and it's probably not entirely incidental that they're funded by the corporate sector. Um, but you know, the the broader question that you're asking is a really important one. One of the points I'm trying to make in this book is that the degree of consensus among economists is a lot broader than I think is widely recognized. The degree to which many liberal economists subscribed substantially to these points of view and and pushed for the adoption of these policies and contributed to the implementation of these ideas was really substantial and really important. And it was that consensus that in some cases allowed these things to take hold. Uh, you know, Reagan passes his tax cuts through a Democratic House, uh, and the Democrats in that chamber are persuaded by about, you know, five years before that of arguments about the benefits of supply-side tax cuts. Uh, you know, leading Democrats have come to subscribe to that ideology, uh, in part because, you know, a lot of influential economists are arguing for it. There are, of course, always economists outside of that consensus, and mm -hmm. I don't want to minimize that. There are always critics. You know, this is, and I mean, the field it includes Karl Marx, and you know, it includes Milton Friedman. Obviously, you can't just make an ideological definition of what an economist is. But, uh, and there were always people criticizing these these trends and and this consensus. But one doesn't want to end up in the position of saying that this is something that you know conservative economists imposed on you know, on the American public, it was a bipartisan project in a lot of really important ways. And I think I, I think the thinking about labor unions is a big example Absolutely. of that, right? I mean, there was an alliance between the Democratic Party and labor that, you know, arose for political reasons, I think more than big picture economic theory reasons uh, in the 1930s, continues through the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, but then Democratic administrations, you know, Kennedy, Johnson, Carter, they, they need to decide like what they want to what they want to do with this relationship. And they have to the extent that they have like econ economists 
advising them, it's people who are who are pretty skeptical of these institutions. Really hostile to unions, regard them essentially as cartels in the labor market context. And, you know, it's really Carter, I think, is where the the, the real inflection point comes. He's the first Democratic president to say, basically, you know, I'm here to represent the common man as a consumer rather than the common man as a worker, sort of the proletariat of the consumers. And and he really, you know, he he doesn't go and give some of the traditional stump speeches before unions. He tells people that, you know, consumers will finally have a champion in the White House. There's this real shift in how the Democratic Party thinks of itself that I think is tremendously important. But yeah, his economic advisors are openly hostile to unions. You know, they gave these uh, recorded histories uh, at the end of the administration, and they talk in those histories about, uh, you know, explicitly about how it was their goal to, you know, drive down the wages of the Teamsters, drive down the wages of airline workers, drive down the wages of auto workers, uh, and to spread that wealth across the economy. Well, they succeeded in taking money out of the hands of the unions. Uh, (laughs) They didn't succeed in spreading it across the economy. And some of this, I mean, this is where I really do think it does become a a disciplinary thing, right? Because thinking about labor unions as economic institutions leads you to a particular sort of viewpoint, right? And and so you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, what you have is a cartel of workers Mm -hmm. who are going to hold the employer hostage and extract some kind of rents, right? And that, I mean, like that is a thing that happens, that it's, it's not wrong, but somebody else might look at a labor union as an institution that brings people from different ethnic backgrounds together and creates a different kind of social institution in which, you know, people exist. You might think of it as a political institution in which, you know, a a politician is going to take a call from the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He's not going to take a call from like a random guy who works at a store, but he will take a call from the head of a giant labor union, right? And that's a different way of thinking about like like what are these what are these institutions for? Like what what happens in society as opposed to just what happens in a, a chart about wages. And the reason that's important is because uh, politics plays a role, a big role in wage determination. So if you have this model, basically, which a lot of economists did, it was the conventional model that wages are essentially you know rationally you know determined by your contribution to economic output. Uh, then labor unions are a distortion of that underlying logic, and they're taking a larger share of the pie than they're entitled to, and that's bad, uh, and it makes the economy function less efficiently. But, you know, there's an older model of wage determination that basically says that it's socially determined, that it's the result of power dynamics, and that it's not the case that you can absolutely specify the share of of output that workers are entitled to. Uh, You need to negotiate it. and if that's the case, and I think there's a lot of evidence that it is, uh, in, in particular lately in the form of the diminishing share that workers are succeeding in claiming for themselves, uh, then what you need is uh, a system in which workers can you know, express their collective will. Uh, right. And that's the role that unions play. And so, I, so this is well. This is the show's called the weeds. So use some use some technical terms, right? So, so the idea here is that wages are determined by the marginal productivity of right. labor, right? So basically, I, I mean, I I don't know exactly how 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 I would say this in non chart form, but it's something like people are paid what their work is worth, 
Yeah. Right. And so thus the idea that if you have a minimum wage increase, you're going to have a, a large fall off in employment because if it was worth paying somebody $11 an hour, they'd be making $11 an hour right. already. So if you boost them up from 7 to 11, like everyone's got to go. Right. And we've started to see, I mean, I think a lot of empirical evidence that in that specific case, that's not True, right? And then the question is, is like, is like, is this generally true? Is this really a helpful way to to think about how wages are set in the economy? And I mean, I think you know that argument it gets hashed out a lot at the level of low wage workers. But one of the places you can see its absurdities most clearly is at the high end of the spectrum. The idea that CEOs have become, you know, suddenly, you know, many times more valuable than they were a generation ago. It's a little hard to articulate uh, a story in which that's true. And yet they're being paid several times more than they were a generation ago. So it's clear that wage setting at the top has a heavy cultural influence where these guys are basically sitting around and, you know, awarding pay raises to their friends and then going to the next meeting room and it's the next guy's turn to get a raise. Uh, it's awfully hard to tell a story about wage determination as something other than cultural at the CEO level. Um, although people try, uh, and then we get down to the worker level and all of a sudden it's, oh my God, you know, it's, it's, it's written into nature that these people shouldn't be making more than $11 an hour. And I think, you know, th this thing about CEO pay, right? I mean, you probably know better than me, but it, it strikes me that this option was not even seriously contemplated when certain policy changes were being made, right? So that, like, if you think, I mean, again, about the airline case, um, the, the deregulators were aware that this was going to squeeze the wages of airline workers. But their conception of it was that by creating a less regulated marketplace, more competition, uh, wages for these sort of privileged insiders flying planes and working as flight attendants would go down and the benefit would all accrue to consumers. And the idea that even as the airline industry became less profitable, that the uh, salaries of the airline CEOs would skyrocket was like, you know, that like the money was just up for grabs, right? Yeah. And it wasn't like really in the mix. And and there was this, you know, it's a great example of the certitudes of economists because there was this premise in, in the mid-century that the allocation of output between labor and capital was, was basically a, a natural law, that there was a level of output that workers would be able to claim. And so that if you were shifting some of it from these workers, it was going to end up in the hands of other workers and, you know, capital wasn't going to be able to make a claim on it. Uh, and it turned out that that was wrong. I mean, we basically shifted the compensation model in part because we decided corporations should be run in the interests of shareholders. We made the executives into shareholders. Uh, you know, they got these huge stock option packages and it turned out that a capital could indeed claim uh, a larger share of the pie. Right. And so, you know, you, you have a bunch of changes which wind up uh, – greatly inflating, you know, uh, investors' wealth, CEOs' wealth. And you see cross-nationally that this doesn't happen everywhere or to the same degree, right? So you can look at the CEO of a big German auto company yeah. will just make way less money than the CEO of an American one. And that's, you know, some of it is like the specific rules of, of the road that exists there, but some of it is just... I don't know what to call it. Like it's it's society. And the stock market multiples on German companies are lower. And and a lot of this can be traced back directly to the fact that Germany has strong unions that actually play a role in corporate management. And so the workers are literally voting on how much money the CEO gets paid. Yeah, and this was something I, I I've spoken to um some German business people and you know, they said that that what what happens that 
American executives fear that if labor has a voice on the job, that it will then become like impossible to make changes and survive. And they told me that their experience was like, that's not true. People who work at Siemens don't want Siemens to go out of business. Uh, but the the problem is that if you ask your workforce to do something they don't want to do, right, like we're going to have to make a change to survive, you as a leader need to be participating in the shared sacrifice. You know, mm -hmm. that was his explanation to me of why uh, they pay themselves so much less than their American counterparts pay themselves, that it wouldn't it wouldn't work as a as a dialogue, even when it's not it's not necessarily even literally true mm -hmm. that the money saved like flows straight into workers' pockets. But it's a question. And I think it's intuitive. You think of any kind of like team, right? It's like the person in charge uh, needs to be part of the team. You know, as long as people there like have some have some actual say. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, because historically we think of America as as the society in which castes played a less important role, in which the division between managers and workers was, you know, they ended up in the same church pews on Sunday. Um, but you know what you're describing, and I think there's a lot to it. Is is that those distinctions are now starting to be more sharply felt, uh, you know, in American companies than in their German counterparts. Right. And so, where does this story fit into uh, sort of globalization and and things like that that have been? I, I think you know we've talked a lot about sort of obscure '70s regulation yeah, fights exactly. um, that pe people in don't pe yeah. <laughs> people don't talk about that much these days. Um, but I think like trade is is very much on, on everyone's minds today. It's huge, and you know I think it's it's a really important example of the dynamics we're talking about. So globalization, I think of globalization and and automation as as forces that are sort of playing out. Really, you know, to a significant extent beyond the reach of policymakers, manufacturing is being spread more evenly across the surface of the globe. And the role of policymakers in a developed nation is basically, uh, you know, to regulate the pace of change, uh, to borrow an idea from Karl Polanyi. Uh, and, and that's where American policymakers basically say, you know, we're going to let this happen as fast as, as possible. We're, we're not going to worry about compensating the losers uh, so long as we believe that, you know, collectively we're all benefiting from this. Uh, in the aggregate, we're all benefiting from this. That's good enough. Um, and that, you know, that emerges as a very powerful justification, specifically in the realm of trade policy, but also in other areas. And it ignores the fact that we are not all benefiting. There are people who are benefiting and there are people who are not benefiting. There are people who are benefiting a little and people who are losing a lot. Uh, and, and, you know, what happens with trade is that you get these huge concentrated costs uh, that the government does very little to ameliorate. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I found uh, I remember from from being in college uh, when when some of these these debates were playing out, late '90s, the early uh, early zeros. I don't know what we call that time period. Um, a sort of remarkable amount of smugness from some people in economics and in policymaking about this, where they would say. They would like draw a picture and they'd be like, well, there's these like huge concentrated costs and these like broad diffuse benefits. And the whole problem is that the political system may allow the people who would be subject to the huge costs yeah. to block it. And so like the genius of our program is that like we're going to we're going to break their their will. And you come back and you look at it. Right. I mean, you look at, you know, a, a town that was built around a, an industrial cluster that is gone and they're now bearing huge costs. And it's like, well, we have some diffuse benefits like people everywhere in the suburbs can save like a buck on a chair. 
and like it's it's weird, right? I mean, it's 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 not that there was a lack of awareness that the costs would be steep. Um, they were very aware. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a town in Ohio that had a Huffy bicycle factory, made like you know employed a thousand people making bikes, uh, and that bicycle factory moved to China, and now there's a Walmart in its parking lot where you know everybody can buy the cheaper bikes. Uh, that's basically the trade-off uh, in, in real terms is everyone in that town doesn't get to make bikes anymore, but they can all buy cheaper bikes, assuming they have enough money to do that. There's no question. You don't want to say that that's not a real benefit. Bikes are cheaper. That's great. But, you know, in area after area, if you've squeezed the workers and said, you know, you're going to sacrifice and you're going to sacrifice and you're going to sacrifice, if you're punishing people as producers, even as you're rewarding them as consumers, um, you know, you end up in a place where you get a lot more inequality uh, and a lot of angry people. And you and you could think about the exact trade-off on that chart just the other way. You could be like, look, we could unlock this important aggregate benefit, but... Yeah. In order to do that, we're going to have to do something to address the town that had the Huffy factory. And so we're going to wait and we're going to think, like, it, like, do we have a good idea? And if you can't come up with something better, like, then maybe you don't close the factory. Right? Yeah, maybe you just do it slowly, right? So, I mean, I think a great model for this, although it, it was plenty complicated at the time. But, you know, dock workers unions basically succeeded in negotiating these deals where the transition to cranes that unloaded large boxes was inevitable. Break bulk where, where you know, individual workers climbed on a ship and carried off, you know, bags over their shoulders was not going to be sustainable. But the deals basically said, we're going to do this slowly. Uh, we're going to shift toward, you know, taking advantage of technology slowly. We're going to preserve some jobs in the transition. And we're going to give time so, you know, this generation of workers is provided for and the next generation, their children, has fair warning to stay the hell away from the docks. Right. And that's, you know, you get to where you need to go. You get to the point of efficiency. Now the cranes unload the ships and people can drive golf balls off of Hudson Piers. But, you know, uh, you get there a little bit more slowly and that's better for everybody. Right, right. I mean, exactly. It's a question of you, you don't want to say no to a useful technology like forever. Right. Right. But you can say Okay, like pe- we need to we need to consider like like what what are we actually going to do about this? Yeah. Okay, let's let's take a second break and then I want to I want to return to the big picture. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro rower, finding time for a 20-minute full body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. 
That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So we we started talking about the Fed, right? And and the, the Fed used to be not really involved with economists a lot um, now, all sort of sort of taken over. Um, and the Fed very much sort of in the in the spotlight lately, right? And I think this is an institution that we've tried to sort of like keep it out of politics in some sense, but it's like really making big decisions that are incredibly relevant to some of these trade-offs between labor and, and capital. And and like how how did that come to be like the the modern oracular fed yeah it's a it's a fascinating story and and it's a story you know milton friedman is sort of the big character in this revolution and probably his most consequential victory uh, is convincing policymakers really around the world that monetary policy is the dominant form of macroeconomic policy that that the central bank is singularly uh, empowered to regulate economic conditions and that the way you do this is by you know trying to maintain sort of a minimalist approach to policy where you just keep control of inflation and that's the best thing government can do uh, to secure broader economic conditions. Um, so this really comes in under Paul Volcker in the late 70s and the early 80s, and it, it sweeps the globe. Um, and and that shift implies a willingness to tolerate more unemployment. So what you get is the central banks basically saying, we are going to you know take a pound of flesh from workers in order to achieve uh, stable prices. And and you have you know Volcker's there in the in the late 70s and the early 80s, and whatever you think of exactly the solution he hit on there at least like there really was like a lot of inflation there was absolutely and then there wasn't a- yeah. after after this and so you know fair enough right but what's happened now is you know we're now 30 40 years distant from that time like there hasn't been inflation like my whole lifetime yeah but we've had lots of unemployment and this, again, is, you know, this idea that revolutions go too far, right? So you've got Volcker saying 10% inflation is bad. Yeah, 10% inflation is bad. But by the 90s, you've got Alan Greenspan going before Congress and literally testifying that uh, 2% inflation is better than 3 and 1% inflation is better than 2 and 0% inflation is better than 1. There is no empirical evidence for this. And internally at the Fed, you can read in the transcripts, Greenspan confessing to his colleagues that he has no evidence for this claim. Um, but he's making it because he's pretty sure it's going to be borne out someday. He has a whole theory that in environments of of more inflation, companies are less likely to take risks because they can just get price increases on the back of inflation. Uh, has never been proved, certainly hadn't been proved at the time. And yet, you know, what's driving American policy is this conviction that you should get inflation down as close to zero as possible. Yeah, and you, 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 I mean, you had in the in the early '90s. I mean, I think a bit of political history. Not a lot of people understand, but in uh, when George H. W. Bush was was president, uh, he like he really got 
got screwed. Uh, and they were very deliberately, you can see in the transcripts, slow walking recovery from that that 1990 recession because they thought it was a like a, a good opportunity to push inflation down another point. Absolutely. They were doing these opportunistic deflations at every opportunity. Every time they had a chance in the business cycle, they squeezed a little harder, a little harder, a little harder. And there's this amazing study by uh, by the Romers, uh, you know, looking at the implied degree to which the Fed tolerated higher unemployment and finding, you know, that essentially as much as a percentage point higher in the unemployment rate over this period of opportunistic uh, disinflation, uh, basically millions of American workers kept out of work by the Federal Reserve for the sake of reducing inflation to a level that has no empirical justification. And then we had, obviously, more recently, Great Recession and Unemployment rate got very, very high. Uh, and, and you see, I mean, I, I remember in uh, Tim, Tim Geithner's memoir, there's one point in which he's saying like, well, you know, we had to we had to like make sure that we would be reassuring markets that, you know, we, we were doing some crazy stuff, but there wasn't going to be inflation. And you had, um, I mean, nobody... No, but nobody likes to to side with with Donald Trump. Uh, but you know he's been making some critical remarks about interest rate increases that had happened in 2016, 2017. And uh, I mean, it seems to me like he he was correct, right? Yeah. Like there was there was no actual inflation problem. They they slowed recovery to head off the like hypothetical future possibility of. Prices going up three percent instead of two. Yeah, we should stipulate that this is not like a, a belief of Donald Trump's. It's purely, you know, opportunistic. It happens to work for him right yes, now. He but... had the opposite belief yes. when his partisan incentives were opposite. Exactly. But he is currently taking the right position on the issue, which is that the Fed has been uh, overly cautious and as a consequence uh, has provided insufficient stimulus in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So do you see do you see change? I mean, is is the economist sour behind us or are, are, are things shifting? I, I think for sure, you know, I mean, 2008 is a huge inflection point and it discombobulates things in much the way we saw in the 30s or the 70s where, you know, the old certainties are open to question. We're seeing economists doing a lot of exciting work about inequality, new approaches to economic policy. It's a time of ferment. You know, clear answers haven't emerged. The danger, obviously, is the, you know, this nationalism or, you know, the turtle politics of hunching yourself up in a shell and hoping, you know, the world goes away uh, is, a, is a common response to this type of crisis. And, and there needs to be an alternative. Uh, and I think, you know, the emergence of that alternative remains a, a bit of a fraud enterprise right now, but there's certainly the opportunity. And do you think, I, I mean, one, one thing I saw when you're, uh, you, you did a, a piece based on the book uh, in the Times, and, you know, I, I follow a lot of uh, economists on Twitter, uh, and there was a certain amount of like, like not all economists kind of reaction. And I mean, I, I do think it's true that if you look at the sort of like what is being published in the field now, that it's not exactly the same as like what you're talking about in the book. Absolutely. And and I wanna I wanna underscore that point. You're right. I mean, it certainly has, has annoyed a lot of economists. And I, I absolutely <laughs> agree. I mean, the field is changing. Uh I'm writing a work of history uh, about the way that the economics discipline was over this half century period. And I think that we're still living with the consequences of that. I think that those ideas remain enormously influential in public policy. But the field itself uh, is evolving. And and uh, much of the critiques in my book are founded and grounded in work by this new generation of economists who are you know, uh, doing a better job of understanding how the economy works, uh, really looking at inequality. We now have a generation of data about what inequality looks like in practice, and it's pretty horrifying. 
Um, and that stuff is enormously exciting. And and my hope is that these new approaches to economics increasingly will inform policymaking. And a lot of like, I, I mean, it's, I, I don't really understand academia, but I, I feel like now a lot of what is like an economist, quote unquote, is like a kind of social scientist who knows how to do a lot of difficult math. Um, and and a lot of the, you know, like papers that will come out, they're, they're not even necessarily about the economy. They're just like, they're like hard math, right? Uh, but at an earlier time, like before they had all these good computers, right? It's a much more theory-driven enterprise, Absolutely. right? And th- and that's what that's what a lot of this comes from. And it's it's interesting to me. We talked about antitrust, right? And th- but there's this specific like law and economics movement. Hmm. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that it's so much about like not doing empirical economics. It's like giving lawyers some very simple kind of toolkits that they then apply to everything. And that continues to be like incredibly influential, even in areas where I think like actual economics research has kind of moved on from from those models. Yeah. I mean, there is there is an attempt to sort of, I mean, they have these theories and then they try to create tools. There's this index uh, that's used to assess the degree of market concentration. And, you know, there are attempts to sort of make it a little bit more empirically grounded. But fundamentally, it's it's an agenda that was driven by a theory uh, and then, you know, tried to sort of put it into practice. And so, yeah, it's clear that there's been, I think, the most encouraging development in economics is, is you know, this, this turn toward empiricism and the availability of large and nuanced and granular data sets that we can use to you know, drive better models of how the economy actually works. But what? But what? What? What has to be done to 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 save the world? I mean, to my mind, the answer is you know, if you think inequality is the problem, the answer is to focus on inequality. I mean, that's obviously you know a broad, broad and easy thing to say. But the fact of the matter is that to a remarkable extent, we've ended up in this place because we weren't even trying. Um, you know, the degree to which public policy just treated inequality with indifference is actually a source of some comfort to me because it suggests that if you try, you might get somewhere better. Well, so one thing I, I saw in, in response to that was uh, Garrett Jones, a George, George Mason economist, libertarian guy. Uh, he he was saying a little crankily, like, no, like economists have been studying inequality forever. Um, we have this really well-developed model of human capital and wage determination. And the problem is that we just weren't giving the answers that that the left wanted to hear. And that's why people, people like Thomas Pick. I, I think there's some truth to that, right? So, I mean, part of the answer that they were giving is basically if you focus on efficiency, it will be better for everyone. That was the answer, right? That was mm-hmm. the model. Okay. So, if that's if that's your answer is that that was your solution to inequality, great. We ran a natural experiment. We're, we're half a century into it. How's it going? Not well. <laughs> Not so good. But then the other question that, that, you know, comes up in the policymaking space is if you do want to address inequality, um, you know, and this is, this is I, I think you can think like, schematically, right, divide like Democrats and Republicans. Republicans wouldn't even say that they care about this. But then inside a Democratic coalition, there's a view that's like, well, maybe we should have higher taxes, right? And then like we can give the money to Medicaid or whatever. And and then there's another view that says like, no, what we need to do is like get in the in the guts of the economy and and reorder it. And it seems to me that your book is really about that that latter viewpoint and it's like diminution and return. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, without subscribing to like the specific proposals, I think the concept that we have a fairly systemic problem and that we need to get into the engine room 
uh, and and work, you know, at the levers, not just raise tax rates a little bit and everything will be okay, but change the rules of the game, you know, uh, make it possible for workers to, you know, uh, you know, pursue their own interests, ensure that there are minimum standards in place, you know, regulate markets in a way that ensures that we have competition. I mean, you know, across a broad range of areas, it's not just enough to adjust the water level. You want to really be, you know, uh, thinking about about the, the mechanics of the system. And is that because you think just doing sort of tax and transfers isn't isn't viable politically or do, like what, what what's what's sort of like wrong with that no i just of... think it i mean i think it it is is an important part of the solution mm-hmm. um, but i just think it's insufficient by itself i think that in the first place it puts too much weight on tax and transfers because if you can make changes that increase oper- access to opportunity that increase you know that even out the pre-tax pre-transfer distribution of wealth you're limiting the amount of strain that you're putting on political consensus. You're creating an economy that's already working better for people, and therefore you don't need uh, to, to alter as much after the fact. And in the second place, because I think that those changes will actually serve to increase, you know, our collective prosperity um, in a way that, you know, simply transferring the returns of a system that's operating less efficiently than it could will not. Right. I guess we should mention this. Right. The the point of this whole revolution was that it was supposed to make the economy grow yeah. faster, right? Yeah. The, this is like like the rising tide lifts all boats, right? Absolutely. And uh, the tide has continued to rise, but it's it's risen more slowly. It has. Growth, you know, the pace of growth uh, adjusted for population has declined in every decade since the 1960s. It's possible that this decade will mildly reverse the trend. Uh, the comp is good, so... We'll see. Maybe we get ahead of the aughts uh, this time around. But in general, it's been slower. So you haven't seen like some revival of growth on the back of this set of policies. And, you know, I I have to say, like, it's remarkable to me the lack of sort of reflection on that, that that you see in certain quarters that for a long time. I read a sort of literature that like denied that this was the case. And right. you, you get a lot of quibbling about inflation indices. Uh, and now, I, I mean, it's unfortunate because I, I think people on the left don't talk that much about economic growth. They don't. Yeah, it's a real absence. And it's it, and to the extent that they do, you know, you hear these stories like, well, we just stopped having good ideas or, you know, uh, you know, it's down to population and demographic change. And those things are real without doubt. But, you know, they're not the only things that are going on here. Right, right. So it's this so I I I don't hear much about growth from the left and from the right. You kind of hear um Tyler Cohen and Peter Thiel have they popularized this I think like slightly mysterious view that like we we just like don't have ideas anymore. Yeah, and I want to say something about that cuz I mean to me the 90s is a really key part of this story because the 90s are remembered as the last time it was working. And I don't think that's right. I think the 90s are this era when we were taking advantage of the things that had been working. And so, you know, you've got all this investment in education and in research through the mid-century. We get to the 90s, we're reaping the fruits. We have the most educated workforce in the world. We have some of the most advanced technology in the world. Uh, And that's great. But we also stop planting new trees. Mm -hmm. We stop investing in education. We stop investing, not stop. We reduce our investments in education, research, infrastructure. And we're living with the consequences of that. So when people say, you know, where are all the good ideas? Well, this is what happens. If you stop planting crops, then when it's harvest time, you're not going to have as much to harvest. And I also always think about, right, they they will teach you in an economics class that productivity just like happens, right? right? It's a exogenous <laughs> is the is the word. Uh, but then, you know, when, when I look around as now, like the unemployment rate has finally gotten low, 
right? It, it seems to me that you have uh, the companies that employ low-wage workers are, like, thinking harder about, like, like, what am I doing here? Like, how can I change my business model so that I can get more done without hiring more people? How can I train people who I wouldn't have hired before, right? And and this can be, like, the engine of productivity is Absolutely. that you, you make businessmen think about it. Yeah, or you impose regulations and people respond by inventing new technologies. I mean, there's lots of ways to catalyze innovation. And there's a tendency, there's a broad tendency in economics. One of the things that I think is dangerous about over-reliance on economics is it tends to devalue the things that can't be measured. And productivity historically has been one of those things. And so it gets treated as a remainder or exogenous, which just basically means we're not sure how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really harmful because it means that you're not giving equal weight to the parts of the policymaking equation uh, that can't be wrestled with by putting, you know, a dollar figure on it. And it leads to a lack of interest in studying the question, yeah. right? Like, there have always been people, um, like, in the history of science or in sociology, right, who have been interested in the question, like, mm -hmm. like how do innovations happen, right? But the, like, economics toolkit is not well designed to it. It would it would just tell you, well, you should have there be incentives. Right. Right. Um, but you know, it, it's interesting to like ask the question, right? Like, like, why did Bell Labs happen? Like, why did Jonas Salk make vaccines and give them away? Mm -hmm. Right. Like these are important aspects of uh human life that, and, and that we even, need to understand. And even if the innovations are you know, uh, uh, the source of innovation itself is mysterious. The propagation mechanisms are really important. So once you have the idea, how do you get it out into the economy? How do you ensure that people are incentivized to take advantage of it? That's something I think we actually know more about, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And it's also an area in which we've been falling down. I mean, I love the story of, you know, Bell Labs and its invention of the transistor. Um, you know, it invents this new technology. It's the building block of all modern electronics. And they literally almost as soon as it's invented, invite all of their rival companies to come to New York to learn how to make it, uh, to see their factory. And then they publish what's called Ma Bell's Cookbook, which is detailed instructions on making transistors, uh, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but because the federal government makes them do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the result is that, you know, Texas Instruments soon has a commercially viable silicon transistor and Sony's making, you know, the first transistor radio, the first mass market commercial transistor. Uh, based product and and you know innovation flowers as a consequence. Uh, it didn't just happen. <laughs> there were there were rules that made it happen. <laughs> okay, so uh, but before I let you go, uh, what 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 should I have asked you about? What what did we miss here? I mean, I guess you know the the biggest thing that I hope people take from this book is just that markets are not some you know thing that we live in and need to deal with the consequences of. Markets are created by people. Uh, we write the rules. We get to decide what those rules look like. And I think our political process has has placed too much responsibility in the hands of economists for making those decisions. Uh, and I think, you know, the direction of change uh, should be, you know, more explicit discussion of those rules and and setting through the political process. All right. Fantastic. Binia Applebaum, New York Times editorial board. The book is The Economist's Hour. Everybody who's listening, we are doing a, a survey here at the Vox Media Podcast Network. If you go to voxmedia.com slash pod survey, we would love to hear what you have to say about us and all of our many shows here. Uh, so thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Tuesday. Tuesday.